inspiring conversations with the most compelling performers, educators, authors, and product manufacturers of our time. This is the show about all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast. More musicians today than ever before make their full-time living by performing a wide variety of part-time tasks, or they combine their music careers with other careers to make ends meet. Today on the podcast, I discuss the phenomenon of the portfolio career with Jen Guzman, who wrote her dissertation on the subject. We also discuss work-life balance and some strategies to make the best decisions for your career, pocketbook, and mental well-being. This is part one of a two-part conversation. In the next episode, Jen and I will be talking about the book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. It turns out we both read this book, and I wanted to chat with her to see if it had influenced her life as positively as it had mine. I'm your host, Sean Perrin, and you're listening to the Clarinet Podcast at clarinet.com. If you'd like to listen to an extended ad-free version of today's episode and many others, head to clarinet.com slash subscribe. Don't forget to visit the Clarinet store for links to buy official apparel and special offers, products, and services, some of which are available exclusively to our listeners. And of course, I love to hear from listeners all over the world. If you'd like to get in touch with me or be a guest on the program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button at our website. Again, that's clarinet.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and thank you especially to our sponsors for helping make it all possible. Take your clarinet to the next level with a new mouthpiece, barrel, or bell from Bakun Musical Services. With free shipping to the United States and Canada, 14-day easy returns, and expert advice, you can be sure that you're making the best choice for your musical needs. After all, the best time to upgrade your clarinet was yesterday, but the second best time is today. Use code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com and save 10% on your next accessory purchase. That's code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com. Have you wanted to try D'Addario reeds but weren't quite sure which to choose? Here's how to decide. Reserve reeds come in a white and blue box. They feature a traditional blank and are perfect for those who want to focus sound with the quickest response possible. Reserve classic reeds come in a white and purple box. They feature a thicker blank that provides an expanded tonal color palette, clarity of articulation, and added flexibility. And the new Reserve Evolution reeds come in a white and yellow box. They feature our thickest blank and have a heavy spine for added projection and exceptional tonal depth, warmth, and flexibility. You'll have to try it to believe it. Try Reserve Reads now at your local music store or head to clarinet.com slash reads to buy a box right now. So I'm here on the show today with Jen Guzman. Jen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Sean, thanks for having me. So you recently wrote your dissertation about examining the portfolio careers of classical musician entrepreneurs. And, you know, I think that this is such an interesting topic. But before we dive into it, I really wanted to learn a little bit about you, your background and how you ended up at this really fascinating topic to write your dissertation on. Absolutely. So like every other clarinetist, every other musician, I'm on my own journey and it's been a windy road so far. Um, I started growing up in upstate New York playing clarinet. I went to SUNY Potsdam, way north near uh, Canada, near your neck of the woods. And I got a music ed degree. And then I came to North Texas because I wanted to know what it would be like to have more time just to focus on clarinet. And, you know, could I, quote, make it if I really devoted myself to performance and practicing? And, you know, I did that when I got here. I just dove right in 
those early morning practice sessions, you know, what everybody does in grad school to just really seep it all in. Had a great time, loved it, loved every minute. Um, when I graduated, though, I was confronted with the question of what to do next, which a lot of us have felt. And if you haven't graduated yet, you're probably thinking about it. Um, so a roommate of mine at North Texas had done an internship in uh, Juilliard in New York. So I actually went back home and got an internship there in arts administration. And so that's my first time getting my feet wet in the non-performance side, non-education side of music. And it kind of opened my eyes to everything that's going on in the field of music that's not directly uh, performance or education based. Although I was around in a, in a school and around, you know, performers and educators all day. Um, so that's what kind of started my journey with entrepreneurship. And we could talk about what entrepreneurship even means. Um, but from there, I, I decided to come back and get my doctorate in clarinet performance at the University of North Texas, where I've been studying um, music entrepreneurship as a related field. And so during my time as a doctoral student, I was not only performing and taking lessons and teaching lessons, I started a couple um, separate things. One is a, I started a branch of a nonprofit that brings classical music to nursing homes. And that was based on the business plan that I wrote in a music business class. Um, and I'm still doing that work today. We're going into our third season in Denton County. And that's with Texas Winds Musical Outreach. Check them out. Um, the other thing I do is I co-own a music instrument repair store and retail store with my husband, Tony Barrett, who's an amazing saxophonist and repair technician. And we're located in Denton, Texas. You can check us out, tbwinds.com. Um, and I also teach adjunct one day a week at a school in Oklahoma, southeastern Oklahoma State, where I teach clarinet. And just finally, I'll add this semester, um, I graduated in May with my doctorate in clarinet performance. I'm happy to be done after 10 years of school. Um, but I am going to be returning to UNT to fill in for my professor, Fabiana Claret, who is the director of the Music Business and Entrepreneurship Program. And I'll be teaching the two uh, music business classes that are offered this fall and overseeing the program while she's on a fellowship. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes, I'm excited. What I love about this is that you've actually, you've got your own portfolio career going on. Um, so you're writing from a place of like more understanding probably than, than most and an interesting perspective. So before we get into a little more about your dissertation itself, you said something very interesting and that was something about making it. And I wanted to ask, did your definition of making it as a musician change from before you wrote this dissertation to after, or maybe before you started music till after you graduated or and just tell me about that a little bit, what that means for you. Yeah. Yeah. There's been such a change. I mean, probably a lot of us have a memory of when we first decided to go into music, you know, what drew us to it, some amazing experience that, you know, made us feel something we never felt. So when I was young, I, had some uh, great musical experiences. And I remember thinking, I want to play in orchestras that uh, record soundtracks for movies. Um, I was listening to like the Lord of the Rings soundtrack at that time and other movies that were out. And I just thought, I want to join an orchestra that does just that. Um, not knowing that orchestras are, you know, get hired to record those soundtracks. Um, I didn't really understand the industry yet, but that's where I started. And of course, my vision changed as I got into being an older teenager and going to college. But while I was in college, Finally, learning really how to, you know, get into the clarinet, how to practice efficiently and just making that transition. I, my definition of success at that point after school was performing. And if I wasn't performing full time, whatever full time meant in terms of performing, then I would not be a success. 
And that was a pretty cut and dry definition. I think a lot of people have that when, when we're younger, not realizing that, first of all, you might get that full-time job if, if you're one of the people to win an audition or make an opportunity for yourself where you're full-time uh, performing. You might get there and actually not enjoy what that means day to day. Second of all, there's, as we all know, there's a lot of competition for these uh, coveted full-time jobs and performance. So the reality that all of us are going to be that person to get the job is also slim. And we'll talk a little bit more about that too, because one of the people I interviewed had a very interesting point about that view and, the, and keeping the musical ecosystem healthy and, and vibrant. Um, but so for me, my definition definitely changed throughout my different degrees. And, you know, you'd think at the end of my 10th year of college, I'm 30 years old, I've just done all the different jobs I've already told you about, that I would have a more solid view of what success means, or I might have let go of some of that 13-year-old view of, you know, performance on clarinet is the only way to succeed. But there's still um, times when I am trying to figure out what it means to me, what success means to me in music, and also letting go of, you know, five years ago when I was steeped into my graduate degrees and giving recitals every semester, I was playing clarinet way more than I'm playing now as a new business owner, as somebody teaching music business classes. And I still am trying to find the right balance for me to figure out what my version of success is and to keep the music making process in my life while also satisfying these new loves that I found in, in teaching music and helping other musicians define their version of success. Oh man, I couldn't say it better myself. That's amazing. And you know, what I love about that too, is you, you touched on briefly, first of all, your message of success for yourself or the meaning of success rather is evolving. And I think that's important to recognize, like things change what you wanted for lunch today, maybe you don't want tomorrow. And it's kind of like that for, but it doesn't mean that one was wrong or something, you know? And uh, another thing I love that you touched on, which I think that more people should, is kind of staying true to your your younger self. Like you mentioned that your 13-year-old self and why you started band and music and all that. But mm-hmm. I think there's also a time, and I'd like your thoughts on this, you know, when you look back and you realize that maybe something you wanted was because of ignorance or was something you wanted was because of genuine passion and how you distinguish between those two. So I'll give you an example. Like for me, I've always wanted a certain type of car. And recently I had the chance to buy that car. And I realized that even now at 33 years old, I still want that car. I should have that car, (laughs) you know? It's about time. Yeah. Yeah, But there are other things that I wanted when I was 13 that I'm glad I don't have, or that I, I sh- I'm glad that I didn't go down the path of, may- I guess maybe my interest in marine biology, like, I think I'm happier now than I would have been <laughs> doing that. So how do you think about that for yourself? I, things are coming to mind as you're saying all this stuff. Um, I think it takes the test of time, honestly, because you know what you're drawn to based on your actions. So for instance, at UNT, the University of North Texas, there's many doctoral students, many clarinet doctoral students. So I had a lot of people who wanted different things. And, you know, what I said earlier, like I want to be an orchestral player, you know, playing soundtrack music. But, you know, at at the core, I wanted to play in an orchestra. But in my reality in school, the things that I was going for were not putting me on the path to win an orchestral job. Whereas colleagues of mine, friends of mine, were practicing excerpts all the time, playing for each other excerpts, um, paying to go fly across the country and take all these auditions And while part of me wanted to do that, and I felt kind of disappointed in myself for not doing that, I actually realized, you know what, while I'm competing in music business plans and I'm bringing my chamber music to local nursing homes, which is something I've always wanted to do, 
you know, I played for my grandparents when they were at the end of their life and my family's music lovers. And so I'm fulfilling that thing that's unique to me. And in a one way, it's, it's, it was a little disappointing, like I said, just to realize like, oh, I'm not actually going after what my, my colleagues are going after. Maybe I should be doing that and should is a tough word. But in another way, it gives me hope about everyone's future in the musical ecosystem, because if we're all going after, you know, what kind of different projects that we want to do that resonate with ourselves and our purpose in life, then there's a spot for all of us. Whereas if we're all going for that one full-time job, which sometimes it feels like, or when you're younger, it feels like that's the only option. You feel like there's a dead end. So in one way it's disappointing and in another way it's very uplifting and empowering. Yeah, totally. And you know, that's so interesting too, because you're sort of talking about whether you realize it or not, maybe I speak for myself, but, but influence, if we're talking about a younger person, like when I was in high school, for example, thinking about what I wanted to do in music, it was all very self-centered kind of, you know, but as you get older, it's like, oh, how can I, you know, impact others or, or do something in a more interesting way that actually feeds the community, right? And I think a lot of people find that as they get older and, and even um, David Schifrin, you talked about trying to identify a time in your life when it's time to give back and start kind of mentoring people in a way, you know, and looking for the future like that. So speaking of, of mentors, how did you choose the seven people who made the cut into your dissertation paper? Yeah, that's a great question. And I want to make a call out to the whole clarinet community and universe that there are so many more people that I could and should, and hopefully one day can include in some research like this, but because of the constraints of trying to graduate and, you know, not go overboard, I had been, you know, I listened to your podcast, people that I had heard of through my, my teachers or mentors, um, people that I just put a call out to my friends and said, Hey, I'm doing this dissertation. What do you think? Who should I interview? And so it was really just put together from my local network, but I realized there are so many more people out there to learn from and that I would have loved to include in this paper. Who who are these uh, selected musicians? So I tried to have a mix of people of different age ranges so that people who are reading it as students or as professionals later in their careers could connect with a couple of people who I interviewed. So the first was Zach Manzi, and he is based in Miami, Florida. He is doing a residence with his chamber ensemble conduit at the Miami Frost School. And I actually met him while I was interning at Juilliard. He was a student there. So that was just a personal connection. Um, I interviewed Michael Lowenstern, who you just had on the podcast, and who I was so surprised to learn has a full-time job in a non-music uh, position, yet is still thriving and getting his work out to the masses, to us. Um, so that was really, really eye-opening. I also interviewed Annie Phillips, who is the Dean of Entrepreneurial Musicianship at the New England Conservatory. So she does have a full-time job, but she at one point was based in San Francisco and was doing the portfolio thing career, piecing together performance and arts administration. I interviewed you, and we know all about what you do. Um, I also interviewed Michael McAfee from 8th Blackbird and um, Claire Grelier, um, who is the founding and performing member of Foreplay Clarinet, and she's also a current DMA student. So I, I did want to include some students so that the point is that you don't have to wait till you graduate to start things. You have to actually, if you feel compelled to, you should start while you're in school so that when you graduate, you don't have that, oh God, what do I do next pit in your stomach. Yeah, I wish I knew that when I was yeah, younger. Yeah, at least, at least minimize it a little bit. You probably can't get rid of it. Um, and then the final person I interviewed was Levana Cohen, and she is based in New York. She performs... Uh, in the Astoria Symphony in Queens and teaches at different schools on Long Island and runs the Port Washington Clarinet Choir. 
I love it. And first of all, I can't remember if I said this already, but I'm totally honored to be included. And I think that it was actually really kind of uh, an odd moment to be included amongst people like, you know, the founder of 8th Blackbird and Michael Lowenstern, because I'm like, oh, my God, these are these are people that I looked up to. Like, it's super interesting to be be viewed, um, even mentioned in the same sentence, I suppose. So, yeah, it's really it's really, really great. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for us, you know, people who are still in school and just imagining what our lives could be after, like you and everybody I just listed are perfect examples of how many options there are and, you know, that success is different for everybody. So do you think these types of portfolio careers are going to become the norm or are they just kind of temporary while the, you know, orchestral jobs sort of change or dry up depending on, depending on your perspective um, or recording gigs too? I mean, there's much less than there was, for example, in the 1950s. What is happening? Is this the trend towards the future or what do you think? I definitely think so. And I also think it's been prevalent throughout our history as musicians. Um, and just to clarify, we're portfolio career. What we're meaning is just multiple part-time jobs to create a full-time workload, which I think is just inherent in being a musician. You know, um, I really don't know anybody when I really sat down and thought about it for this paper, just when I, you know, beforehand, when I was thinking about what I want, what do I want to do? And do I want a full-time job or do I want to put it together? Um, you know, nobody's doing just one thing. Even Itzhak Perlman, who's world famous violinist, is teaching and doing online master classes and has a summer music school and does residencies in Israel and Florida. And, you know, even if you do get the job, the full time job, you're doing other things. Danny Goldman, who plays in the, the opera down here, he has a chamber group that he performs with and they do um, virtual and augmented reality recordings and interactions with the audience. You know, he has a full-time job, yet he's choosing to do other things. So I think it's kind of inherent in our nature as musicians to create and to find market needs and, and fill that need with what we do. And I don't really think it's new, but I do think that it's with everything changing, like we kind of talked about the performance jobs being less, um, college positions being very competitive, some of my opening statistics in the paper. Um, yeah, I think there was 140 some odd graduates in 2016, but only nine jobs. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. I did my reading. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Sean. I studied up. I studied up. <laughs> and that's only at NASM accredited schools. That's the data it was gathered from. So there's still other universities. So you can see that the competition of over 100 current graduates vying for those nine positions, plus everybody who graduated in other years. Yeah, current graduates is kind of the key word. Like, don't forget that there's hundreds, maybe thousands of people who graduated over the last 30 years exactly. who all are going for those nine jobs. Oh, yeah, who are wanting to make career changes or who haven't gotten the job yet and are still trying to break it into the scene. So we have to take that into consideration. And I think that's why people are doing more things. And Annie Phillips talked a lot about this, you know, as the dean of entrepreneurship at NEC, you know, making it feel empowering that there's, you know, you might have to do something that's never been done before. You might have to uh, make a new path that somebody else might follow your footsteps in. Just being okay with maybe not following the same path that other people have taken to get to a full-time traditional job. And actually the catch about that is that by doing these different entrepreneurial things, I think you actually position yourself perfectly to be hired for one of those full-time jobs where, you know, people who are hiring clarinet faculty today, they want to make sure that their graduates are leaving school knowing how to make it and, and have successful careers. So why wouldn't they want to hire somebody who knows how to do all these different things in addition to playing clarinet? Well, I think it's so excellent to hear that even, you know, at your, 
your institution and others, they're starting to have entrepreneurial and music business classes because in the past, I think it was really focused on trying to align people with orchestral jobs. But as you just pointed out, I'm not sure that's really responsible anymore even. Um, so as educational institutions, I think it's important to say, yeah, okay, the people who are going to make those jobs, they're still going to get there. They still want to you know, pursue that path. But what do we do about all these other people and how can we prepare them for the future. And it's worth noting too, I just want to jut in here. Sometimes on the podcast, I feel like we go into these, you know, interesting topics that, uh, but I never want to feel like we're criticizing those paths. Exactly. Like, you know, yes. of course it's great if you can get that. And of course, maybe that's for some people, but, but we're, we're not kind of taking a jab at it. If I, I don't know if yes. it comes across that way. <laughs> I always wonder about that too, because I, the, the past two years as a teaching fellow at UNT, I taught the undergraduate music business class. And um, whenever I would bring up these topics and just, urge students to think, you know, even if you are going for that military band position, that orchestral position, what are you going to do if you have five years in between now and when you get the job? Like realistically, a lot of the people we admire, they had this five, 10 years of figuring it out, you know, piecing it together before they became the, the person that we admire that we just think walked right into their perfect career. But, you know, entrepreneurship is not a plan B. It's not because you couldn't make it as a performer. It's because it's whatever you want it to be, really. Totally. Well, and the other thing, too, is don't be discouraged to still pursue that dream or goal, but you should probably exactly. have a backup along the way. Maybe not even a backup, but you can also leverage these things to performance opportunities sometimes, you know? Yeah, I just think that it, there's only nine jobs. That's, that is the reality. So, <laughs> but someone needs to do those nine jobs. Exactly. And I mean, there's, there's need all over the place, like just to bring up my nursing home example, like I get to perform, I get to hire other musicians to have gigs in Denton, which instead of driving an hour to Dallas or Fort Worth to get the gigs, we have paid gigs in Denton to a, a room full of people that need it more than anybody that are so, so grateful to hear the music. And honestly, as sometimes we can get jaded as musicians and feel like, oh, what am I playing this Brahms again for, even though Brahms is the best. But, you know, sometimes you need to feel refreshed and rejuvenated yourself. And I have to say, Going to those performances, some days I was so busy and feeling so stretched between my portfolio of career that um didn't even want to go to those performances. I just felt like it was another thing that I couldn't get done on that particular day. And at the end of the concert, just, you know, people would be tearing or wanting to just hold my hand or just telling me about their favorite song or singing along to one of the jazz tunes we did or a folk song. And I left feeling so uplifted and like I was giving something to my community and I was respecting the elder community, which I think they have a lot of wisdom to pass on to us and I want them to feel valued and appreciated. And that's something that matters to me. So now I get to scratch that itch for myself, you know, and play that role in the community. And it was worth it every time, even if I felt like I didn't have time that day. And for my colleagues, they were doing something else that made them feel that way. So in one way, we're all competing against each other for jobs and opportunities. But the more you think about this entrepreneurship stuff and figuring out what you want to do, you realize that there's a place wide open just for you based on, you know, what you want for your life, for your work-life balance and totally. what you make happen. I should have asked this before, but is this dissertation publicly available anywhere or will it be uh, published in a way people can check it out or? I need to get it on ProQuest. So it is public, but I don't think it's on ProQuest yet. And I, I am planning to apply to ICA to present at, and do a lecture in the next two years. Um, yes, I will make sure it's public soon. <laughs> yeah. 
you reviewed some literature and then you did some case studies. So let's start with the literature. What are some of the top realizations that you had while reviewing the literature associated with this topic? And a place to start, maybe we should define how you view entrepreneurship and how this is kind of a varying topic. Yes. So I think entrepreneurship is still finding its place in higher education, in the arts, because it's so hard to give it a one definition. Because it's different for everybody, like I said, it's just hard to to nail it down with one definition. But I think what I ended up defining it as in this dissertation, what I believe entrepreneurship to be, is a combination of soft and hard skills that makes a musician more prepared for a portfolio career. And this definition comes from Angela Miles Beeching, who's a industry uh, leader for music business entrepreneurship. And um, she has her book, Beyond Talent, which everybody should read. That's a perfect place to start if you're just wanting to get into the music business entrepreneurship thing. What do I do after school? Uh, how do I make this idea come to life? And she has an amazing blog, Monday Bites, where she sends out tips. And I use her resources all the time. Um, but it comes from her writings about what she believed entrepreneurship to be. Um, so that's what how I defined it in this paper. And honestly, with going into the, the review of the literature portion, I was surprised at how many resources there are and how many resources there are, not just from the past decade, because that's kind of what I expected to find since it's been programs are emerging and, you know, people are, this is a hot topic. A lot of people are getting into it, but there are some dissertations from the nineties that I found that were discussing the need for some kind of career development for students, for music business offerings, um, you know, surveying recent graduates and seeing how many of them were full-time in music, how many had switched careers, how many had, you know, were making it, putting it together in a portfolio career, even though they didn't use that term. So the conversation's been happening and just in the last, you know, five, 10 years is when it's become more prevalent to everybody. Totally. And so what are some of the books that you reviewed and maybe what are a couple of reads that people should, you mentioned Beyond Talent, but a couple more that people really should check out on this topic? Yes. Eventually check my dissertation just for the whole list because they're all important. But David Cutler's Savvy Musician and the Savvy Music Teacher are amazing. Kind of another Bible of the, the industry, uh, just like Angela Miles Beeching's book. If you're trying to get into marketing and figure out how do I get the word out about my recital? How do I, you know, just how do I communicate to others what I'm doing? Um, the Bobby Borg has a great book, Music Marketing for the DIY Musician. And it, it is written more towards like alternative bands and, and all kinds of musicians, not classical musicians specifically, but everything translates. Well, hey, sometimes those people are worth learning from, though, because I'm sorry to say, but they often do a lot better job than we do <laughs> as classical musicians of getting out there, you know? Absolutely. Yes. And he writes it in a very colloquial way, so it's easy to read, fun to read. Oh, a really interesting book, which is not like a light read or anything, but it's very interesting, The Economics of Music by Peter Schmuck. Uh, he released it in 2017. And there were just some interesting statistics about um, the economics of music and specifically about classical musicians. So I would check that out if you want to learn about that. But another easy read that is very important for everybody um, who's trying to do performances when you're out of school, when you don't have that on-campus venue available to you. Um, Sarah Robinson is a flutist who wrote Clubbing for Classical Musicians, a do-it-yourself guide to working in alternative venues. And which just details her experience with, actually, she has an amazing talk that you can watch. I don't know if it's a TED Talk or something else, but she gave a lecture 20 minutes about her experience. And she was going towards the orchestral job, the, the flute auditions and 
taking so many auditions and, and feeling the perfectionism of that wasn't really helping her personally and um, ended up saying, you know what, I'm not going to win a job. I'm just going to go make a tour for myself and figure out how to make this happen. And now she's, you know, wrote a book about it and she really has an inspiring talk that you could go listen to. So that's Sarah Robinson clubbing for classical musicians. That's so interesting. That reminds me of, uh, there's another book called, um, I think it's everything you need to know about the music business. Um, did you read that one too? I came across that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's some section there. I can't remember which ensemble or group that it is, but, um, they talked about how they made an absurd number of phone calls, like maybe 400 or 500, maybe even a thousand phone calls. And booked 40 venues for a tour. Now that might be like, wow, 40 is a lot of venues, but man, a thousand is a lot of phone calls. And you know what? 960 no's sure is discouraging, you know? So their point was kind of like, look, you can't just, you know, shut down when you receive your first no, or maybe not even your second or your third, like doesn't mean that you're not going to find what you want if you don't continue to look, you know? Exactly. This might be jumping ahead to my conclusions, but it ties to what you were just saying. What I found at, at the end after interviewing everybody, the best practices in making it happen like this, making a portfolio career, being successful in music, are the soft skills that you just talked about. You alluded to one, just resilience, you know, not hearing no and, and saying, all right, well, closing the book on that. I guess I'll go do something else. You know, a no doesn't mean no forever. It means no right now. It means no, it needs to be improved or no try again. Um, so soft skills like that, are super important. And actually it sounds kind of anticlimactic to come to that revelation at the end of, you know, a big paper with research, but it's really what I found the, the common thread to be throughout all seven interviewees. And I bet if we took a bigger survey, it would, it would also be true that the soft skills are what's really important in a career as a musician. Totally. So you mentioned the interviews. Um, I want to hear a bit about those. So first of all, what was it like interviewing everybody and what were some of the takeaways from everyone that you talked to? So it was really exciting for me to have a dissertation topic that I was actually very passionate about, excited about, and then po posed an opportunity for me to talk to some people that I've always wanted to connect to. So, so overall, I feel grateful for an enjoyable dissertation process. Um, I first talked with each person on the phone for about an hour. I, I sent an email asking if they would talk. I sent some questions um, that would guide our conversation. We you know, some people followed it pretty question by question and answered down the line. Other people, we just used it to get the conversation started. And then I reached out again after the, the talk, after I took notes and just sorted through that and just followed up with to make sure that I had understood their answers clearly because I wanted to get some yes, no answers on things that are a little more <laughs> complicated than yes, no. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I wanted to show it in a table so that I could compare the different interviewees and just show, show my findings in that way. That was it. Um, and you know, corresponding via email and it was really great to, to get connected because people are so willing to share. I found, I, I loved that about being a student. If you ask people for help or for their time or for their, their stories, they are willing to share. So that was really great to hear everybody talk about, you know, not just about clarinet, but they went on about their career. They wanted to you know, expanded further to their work-life balance, to their families, to what realizing what they really wanted in life. And, and as I'm about to graduate, you know, that really helped me feel more solid in my decisions to figure out and maybe prioritize things that I wouldn't have prioritized when I was younger, when I thought clarinet, 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 I have to go for it or I'm not going to make it. Um, and just getting permission basically from all of you to 
say, no, it's okay. If you, you know, want a little more work-life balance, or if you want to do these other things, like I'm doing it and here's how it works. And the realities of having small children while working, I always appreciate that insight. So it was really enjoyable process for me. What was something that surprised you that stands out? Ooh, um, Levana Cohen talked to me about her experience as a freelancer and a young parent. And she actually said that it was very conducive, that the two things worked well together. She thought, how am I going to do this? I should, you know, I'm going to be gigging at night or have all these different things. But for her, she was able to pick and choose the gig she wanted. She made her own teaching schedule and she could base that around her kids' needs when they were really young. So I felt found that surprising. Maybe it's obvious to other people, but that was surprising to me. What was one other takeaway that you would use um, kind of day to day? I really liked your point about the triangle that you use to filter opportunities because one of the best practices that I came to at the end of the paper was you have to say yes to opportunities. And the asterisk to that, you know, the side note is yes, you do, but you also have to at a certain point know when to say no and know how to say no to opportunities. So that's something that's definitely stuck with me. Sean, you told me about this pyramid where you can filter opportunities through. So if it meets all three corners of the triangle, if they're all yeses, then you should take it. If it meets two, you might take it. If it meets none of them or just one of them, then you probably should let the opportunity go. I'm trying to remember where that came from because I think I heard that on another podcast. You said um, it was another podcast. I don't yeah, know the podcast. it's not my own idea, but I do use it every day myself too. And you basically, you think of everything in terms of a triangle and the triangle has three corners. One corner is career. One corner is, will it benefit me financially? And the third corner is, will I enjoy it? And if something meets all three of those corners, then it's like a big yes. Like you absolutely need to do that top priority. If it's only two, it's priority, but you know, it gives way to the, the top things. And then if it's only one, like maybe you should find some, some twos or threes to do, you know, I just think it's a great way to look at that really anything that you're going to be considering, you know, like when you're just starting out, you don't have the ability to find those three corner opportunities right away. You better start saying yes to everything and just getting even one of those corners filled up. But after a while, it's important not to do the one corner items if you have three corner items. <laughs> You know, I think it was Warren Buffett who said something like um, the difference between really successful people and successful people is that really successful people say no almost always. <laughs> and that's true because, uh, you know, if you have a, an abundance of opportunity that you've made for yourself, eventually you've really got to just kind of hone in on the stuff that's going to continue to advance. And I'd say now that I'm a father, I would add a fourth corner. Like, what does it do for the family? You know, like, am I going to be able to be at home with my daughter or do I have to go out of the house or like if I am leaving the house, it better fill three corners. <laughs> like, you know, so yeah, I would almost say it's a square now. Like I consider family to be in kind of one, one end of it too. Absolutely. And like you said, when we're younger, we have to go for it and that's what you should do. That's what I'm sure you did it. That's what I have done. Um, and it's helpful to have a tool like this for when you start to transition, when you're like, Oh, you know, I think you'll know out of necessity when you need to start using this. Like, for me, it was just during my doctorate when I was doing all those, all the jobs that I currently have, except for the new adjunct position at UNT, I, I was doing while I was also a full-time student. And, you know, you don't even list stuff like social life and grocery shopping and all those other things. And I just felt like I, I wanted to keep saying yes. And I, I was saying yes. And then I was not able to make it through, you know, the week because I was just so overwhelmed. And 
you just realize quality of life at some point <laughs> starts to take priority. Yeah, yeah, it's super important. And, and you know, I was thinking too, like when I first heard about this triangle method, it made so much sense to me, but I was at a point in my career where I had the ability to exclude those things. But I realized as I started explaining it to other people, especially some students, they don't have any of those corners filled. So your first, you know, your first job has to be to fill the corners. And if you enjoy it, that's a good sign that you should look for the other two ends of the triangle to fill in especially on the things that you enjoy doing, you know, if you don't enjoy it, I mean, why are you trying to fill the other two ends of the triangle? <laughs> exactly. And that, this all comes back to helping people figure out what their definition of success means and what they want their portfolio career to look like, if that's what they're going for. You know, using this triangle, realizing what opportunities do fill all three requirements or which don't, um, you know, if you're planning to be a teacher, but every time you go leave a private lesson, you're absolutely drained or you're frustrated or, you know, after a couple of years of doing that, you still feel that way. Maybe then it's time to reassess and, and be okay with that and figure out what does make you feel what is enjoyable, what does pay you and, and fill all those corners. Totally. So this actually gets to a point where we're talking about excluding things and uh, sort of tidying up our life schedule. And this will get into more in part two, which we're going to talk about on the next episode of the show. We're going to talk about the life-changing magic of tidying up a book by Marie Kondo, which is quite trendy right now. And it turns out we've both uh, read and applied to our life and, and careers and, and clarinet playing even. So we're going to talk about that. But before we do take a break and come back next week, what is your big final takeaway from your dissertation? And uh, will you make sure to let me know when it's available? Yes, I will definitely let you know when it's available. Um, I think the biggest takeaway is just that you have to take action. So a lot of the stories that I heard from, from you and from uh, your fellow interviewees were, you know, even if something's in the prototype stage, put it out there. And as musicians, we're naturals at that. We, you know, learn music, we play it in a, a master class or we play it for a teacher or, you know, we give a, the pre-recital performance. Um, so we're used to this, you know, put something out there, get feedback even if it's personal feedback, and then go back to the drawing board and update it. So I, f I found lessons like that all throughout the, the interviews that taking things that we learn as musicians and just copy pasting them to whatever else you're doing is a lifesaver. Like, you know, for instance, when you pr prepare a piece to play on a recital, every practice session, you don't just sit down and play through it top to bottom. You look at it from that big picture view you do play it through sometimes to make sure you're, you're getting your endurance built up and you're understanding the, the whole piece as a whole. But you also take many practice sessions to dissect a measure, a note, um, you know, a phrase. When I was getting ready to perform the Nielsen Concerto, I made a little book at the, uh, my teacher, Kim Cole, encouraged me to do this where I cut out all the, I made a copy of my music, cut out <laughs> all the hard parts that were hard for me at the time and still are. Um, but I cut those out and literally with a glue stick, put them on one sheet of paper and under it, I made a roadmap with dates, you know, from, I have seven weeks till my recital. Here's the tempo I'm at now. Here's where I want to be. How do I get there? And literally wrote quarter equals 60, quarter equals 64 the next week, yada, yada. And followed that roadmap to be able to play those licks that I wasn't sure I was going to be able to at the beginning. So as musicians, we're so lucky. We get to put these things into practice all the time. And just if you have any kind of creative ideas, like a music business idea, and that sounds very formal, but, you know, like I said, bringing music to nursing homes or doing a concert series for at a local elementary school, recording an album, starting a fundraiser for something that you're passionate about, about the environment or something and using music as the thing to, to raise the money. 
you have all the tools as a musician, you know, you understand that it takes time. It takes repetition, takes regularity, takes commitment, um, takes making specific goals using the smart acronym is great, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time bound, you know, making your goals specific. So I think we have a lot of advantage as, as classically trained musicians to be successful in whatever we want to do, because we've learned another language. We've put hours in, and we've stood the test of time of realizing that things aren't immediately going to be perfect. You know, hearing the, the clarinet sound that you want in your head, knowing that you're not there yet, and just keep listening to your teacher, keep doing the things that you know you should do to, to close that gap. And it's the same with anything else, and especially these music business ventures and any entrepreneurial ventures. Like, just put it out there, try it, get feedback, try again. And I think you'll be surprised at what you can make happen. To quote a Radiohead lyric, the best you can is good enough. <laughs> there we go. Let's live by it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Remind us, where can we find you online? Thank you, Sean. Um, you can find me on my website, jenguzman.com, and or check out my store's website, TB, as in Tony Barrett, my husband who's a repair technician, tbwins.com. Um, we have uh, some promo stuff up there about our store, more information about the two of us, and you can buy stuff online. Excellent. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Thank you so much for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen to your podcasts. You can also check out the website at clarinet.com for over 100 hours of free audio content with the world's greatest clarinet players, manufacturers, and more. If you loved what you heard, I'd love it if you'd support the podcast for as little as $1 per month. As a thank you, you'll get access to extended versions of many episodes, bonus content, and more. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new Vocalese mouthpiece, Complex Resonance at a Reasonable Price. Get yours at www.bakunmusical.com and save 10% on any accessory purchase with code Clarinet at checkout. Don't forget to check out D'Addario's line of Reserve, Reserve Classic, and new Reserve Evolution reads. You can head to your local music store or to clarinet.com reads to buy a box right now. That's all for now. Be sure to tune in next time for more of what's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry on the Clarinet Podcast.